Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Eurodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Eurogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Morning, everybody. Uh, I want to thank SUFU for the privilege to moderate this point counterpoint session in neuromodulation, where should we place the lead? These are my conflicts of interest, familiar with different ways to deliver neuromodulation. And for this session, we will only focus on the invasive techniques. So there are three main sites for lead placement, the sacral roots, the the pudendal nerve, and the tibial nerve. And with new technologies reaching the market, we have a challenging and very exciting environment to discuss where to place the leads, both for sacral neuromodulation as well as for tibial nerve neuromodulation. And we have two real experts in the field to discuss and present opposing views on this uh, lead placement. First, we're going to have Dr. Steve Siegel presenting on sacral is the target, and then Dr. Scott McDermott to present on other targets. So please, Steve, come to the podium. These are my disclosures. And uh, I just want to uh, uh, attract your attention to the bottom line, which is nothing uh, you will or will not be convinced to do as a result of my presentation will result in my direct financial gain. So I think that's an important statement to be able to make. Um, These are the goals when we place a sacral lead. We've learned a lot over the years. And we want to be sure that the lead tracks the nerve. We want to have consistent responses on all four contacts of under two milliamps, and we want to have an appropriate pattern of uh, sensory and motor responses. So there's a lot of elements or factors that go into uh, placing a sacral lead. Um, We may not have a similar parallel uh, levels of distinguishers with tibial lead. And there is a debate. It's still maybe going on. I think it is solved, but uh, does the quality of the interface of the sacral lead Uh, and the uh, nervous system matter to the outcome of sacral neuromodulation. So you you see here uh, on the left a cartoon image of the lead following the nerve, and, you know, that's kind of part of the advertising or our concept of uh, this lead placement. But really the situation is a lot more uh, complicated, and this is not new information. This is a drawing from the 1930s showing uh, the pelvic nerve branches from uh, S3 and S4 are really part of a network of nerves. And what we're doing and the reason why steering the lead in one direction or another is because we differentially can affect some of these nerves that then uh, relate to both the efferent and afferent uh, stimulation uh, uh, of the nervous system and regulation of bladder and bowel function. And so, you know, the yellow area really should be this area, and it's even more complex than this because this is showing one particular nerve, but layered on top of that is another nerve. So we have space both anteriorly, posteriorly, um, inferiorly, and superiorly where we want to snuggle that lead in. So really much of the evolution that we've seen uh, in terms of our understanding of sacral neuromodulation and, and making benefit is focused on this idea of optimal lead placement. On the left, you can see kind of these stick drawings that show the appropriate spacing of contacts, 
um, in, in both the AP and lateral view and you know, kind of a more relevant picture of the lead following the nerve. But conceptually, uh, this drawing, I think, really uh, tips the hand as to what's going on and where we're headed. So uh, this is a mixed nerve. It has both sensory and motor components. Um, and uh, there may be different areas or different targets along the course of the nerve that are more relevant for one particular problem versus another. So I would call the broad target problems fecal incontinence and overactive bladder. And we know pretty much that the therapy is extremely robust for those problems. And you put that lead anywhere uh, in the right zip code and you know it's going to work out well for the patient. But as the problems become more sensory in nature, um, I think that's where the quality of lead placement and the interface really is critical, most critical to the outcome of the uh, therapy. So this is showing conceptually in space. As the lead goes out further, it becomes more sensory. It starts to form the pudendal. So maybe if we could differentially affect or target uh, these areas of the nerve, uh, we might have a better chance of treating uh, OAB with a component of pelvic pain, for example, which is a huge part of my practice. Now, where future research could go is changing the type of stimulation, the pulse rate or chains of stimulation to differentially affect, you know, afferent versus efferent nerves for different conditions. So FI might be slightly different than OAB dry and so forth. So I think that there's a lot of potential to further leverage uh, this network of nerves and specifically target spots for one problem versus another. Now here's the debate about optimal lead placement, and I, I took a lot of pride in making this slide, so uh, I don't have it in your handout. I'd encourage you to take a picture uh, and you can study it later. But this, this really represents the arc of progress over time. Uh, so you have the Medtronic 103 study, which, uh, you know, the study took place before uh, it was actually published in 1999. We used data from this study to get FDA approval in 1997. And this is, you know, blind PE, blind surgical implant of the lead. Um, you know, we had clumsy things. The patients couldn't adjust the, uh, the amplitude of stimulation. Uh, so the techniques were very low. And yet we had 60-plus uh, percent greater than 50% success rate. So, you know, that was good enough to get the therapy approved. And then we did the INSIGHT trial. And in the INSIGHT trial, we started using fluoroscopy. We started using the tying lead. But the type of lead that was used, some of the people in this trial used the interstim for dummies lead, which has been discontinued. Uh, some of them used the stiff stylet. Uh, it was institutional standards that were going on. And the success rate here was 80% for OAB wet. Um, uh, Sarah Adelstein from KK and Una Lee and Alvaro's group um, in uh, Virginia Mason took the, uh, the uh, optimal lead placement technique to a T and uh, looked at all their studies since 2000, all their patients since 2014, and their success rate with the inner stem system and using that technique. Uh, and this is a retrospective study, but it included both patients with OAB wet and the more narrow or difficult target patients, OAB dry, 
was nearly 90%. And then the Artisan study recently published using a different platform for stimulation, uh, but about the same number of patients had the same efficacy, which I think is mainly due to the uh, technique of optimal lead placement, which was very strenuously uh, undertaken in that study. So I have a concession to make an implantable tibial nerve or another target might be more attractive uh, than the sacral nerve, but in order for that to be true, uh, the results have to be close. They don't have to be better. Uh, the procedure has to be able to be done and undone by our specialty. We can't have the patient having to go to a foot and ankle surgery or an orthopedic surgeon to get these things out. The benefit, of course, has to be worth the risk, and patients need to want it instead of sacral neuromodulation. But, you know, we have so much better tools and tools emerging in sacral neuromodulation. Uh, here's a device uh, from the Nuspera. It's an experimental device thus far, but uh, it's a technique of sacral lead placement that's known to us. It's potentially office-based. The, the trial is the procedure. Uh, it, the results of sacral neuromodulation, which this essentially uh, is, uh, are already known. Uh, this can be leveraged to both broad and narrow target patients. And there's no reason why we ultimately have to be limited to putting one of these in. We could put more of these in and do a multi-target placement in the future. So in conclusion, my sense about this is that there may be conditions where implantable tibial nerve stimulation would be more attractive than sacral neuromodulation, but these are the low-hanging fruits of neuromodulation. Uh, and there are important problems that we all address with sacral neuromodulation that will not be appropriate for implantable tibial nerve stimulation, except for fecal incontinence, which for some reason tibial nerve stimulation doesn't seem to be as effective for, but it's a broad target problem. There are problems like OAB dry, OAB with a component of pelvic pain, uh, perhaps non-obstructive urinary retention, where optimal sacral lead placement is especially critical for and ultimately, implantable tibial nerve modulation might be something to kind of expand our universe of options here, and it's a welcome change, but it's not going to replace sacral neuromodulation for all options. So thank you for your time and attention, and Scott, have at it. Thanks, welcome. I hope you're uh, enjoying your meeting. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for... Uh, I love being up here with you. You're a great man. Now, I'm gonna, my talk really is on uh, why we need other targets beyond the sacrum, why sacral neuromodulation is currently not uh, neuromodulation for the masses. Uh, these are my... Uh, hit the green button to go forward. Green button to go yeah, forward. Yeah, green button. There we go. Those are my disclosures. Now, the most important one is I'm Canadian and why that's important is because I see these point counterpoints are kind of like hockey. There's winners and there's losers. And when it comes to hockey, the Canadians win and the Americans usually lose. But I sort of say that for fun. But you can't, when you're once a, always a Canadian, sort of, in a sense. These are my objectives. We're going to talk a little bit about refractory overactive bladder. I really like sacral neuromodulation, but it's not neuromodulation for the masses. I'm going to make a case why we need other targets and shine the light on some of the future ones and in fun, score a few more goals than Steve. 
The, uh, there is, this is an old slide actually, it's not a new disease anymore, but I usually call refractory overactive bladder robe, and that's what we're talking about, but it's its own clinical entity in my opinion. It does have a boring definition, it's kind of vanilla, I live in Greensboro, kind of a vanilla town, but vanilla is okay. But it, this is the real world of refractory overactive bladder, you can read that slide, but there's just millions of people, you know, they're cycling through drugs, they don't tolerate them, they're too costly. So many people have refractory overactive bladder. And the important problem that we have, in spite of these three imperfectly good treatments, you know, the penetrance of them is maybe five, but really probably 4%. So the 96% of patients with a robe just live with a problem if they don't reach their treatment goal with drugs. So we definitely need other targets. Uh, why not sacral nerve stimulation? Why isn't it for the masses? I think all the treatments, there's just a lot of apathy. The enemy of treating beyond drug is apathy uh, and interest in incontinence. There is a, I don't find the interstim very invasive, but I think in the mind of the per, per patient, they feel it's invasive. I do believe in the first five years, there is an efficacy durability issue. We're always tweaking the device to make, you know, it doesn't work like it used to. And uh, whether it's neuroplasticity, et cetera, but I'm glad my slings don't do that, but I just counsel my patient. That's part uh, of interstim. Uh, cost is becoming more of a barrier, I think. But there's many patient types, at least in my elderly practice, that they say this is just not for them. Um, I think Medtronic is a phenomenal co company. Uh, it may be unfair, but maybe they didn't bring this device to the general urologist over the last decade like they may have and really spoke to more like people in this room. I'm not really sure if that's a fair comment. And there's uh, an MRI issue. But now with a new kid on the block, a lot, some of these are being addressed nicely. Certainly the MRI overnight is. And I think there's going to be a lot more noise and awareness and education. And that's going to be good for everybody in this room and all our patients and hopefully some of my general urology colleagues as well. Uh, so, but if you think of your treatment algorithm, um, we're not, you know, there are barriers to treating beyond drug, but SNS is not reaching the treatment goal, so we clearly need other targets. Uh, percutaneous tubule nerve stimulation really is a great treatment for your patients. If you look at the data, in spite of all the naysayers, it does work. And the data is very consistent, it's very robust. Ken Peters' study, the 220 patients at SAM trial, that's level one evidence. If you look at that, look at the end number, look at the results, it's really good data and it does mirror clinical practice. Uh, this slide here is just showing that once, there's, there's a fair amount of data that once you get someone kind of where they are after 12 weeks on PTNS, it takes about one treatment a month to maintain the long-term benefit. Why well, show that slide, I don't like saying anecdotal things actually, but I've, I've reflected after doing this for multiple years is that I find, I'm not, I think the durability in the ankle may stay consistent. It doesn't seem to fade. And I, I'm just, my gut feeling, I don't have many people say, Scott, I've been doing PTNS for two years, but I'm stopping because it doesn't work like it used to. I'm just stopping because it didn't work that well and it copay, you, you follow me? And, and I just wonder in the tibial nerve, whether it's neuroplasticity, what have you, but maybe the tibial nerve efficacy, whatever it gives, may stay longer than some of the issues we're battling in the sacrum. Now, if that's true, that's gonna be important uh, with future implants in the ankle, but that's just an opinion. PTNS versus sacrum, you know, there's obvious advantages in, those three, in these first three bullets. The fourth is the most important one. 
in most patients, and it actually is most patients, it's the only option. Maybe not most, but in so many people, it's the only option. So, because so many of your patients, you walk in the room and go, I'm not offering this patient Botox or InterStim, or if you do, they say, no, thank you, dear. Those patients are all day long in your practice. That's why you have to, this isn't this versus this. This often is the only option for the elderly, et cetera. Because it's so benign, it is closer to neuromodulation for the masses, but again, barriers do exist, which really segues to the future therapies. You know, the tibial nerve does work. I've been very unfortunate to be involved with the ecoin device, the implant. Um, it's, it, it's, 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 uh, battery, it's battery powered. There's no lead. It's, um, it basically, picture making a three centimeter incision in your lower leg and you put a little nickel next to the tubule nerve. That's really what you're doing. If you look at the feasibility study that's been published, it was just under 50 patients, that's public knowledge, that's published data. And you look at the dry rates and the responder rates, it's really good durable data. And that's really, I think, what this device is gonna deliver. And there's a really wonderful pivotal trial going to the FDA right now and it's, it, it's, it's it's getting pretty close to complete, and I urge you uh, to see Dr. Rogers present the six-month data from the pivotal trial on Saturday. Simple office-based procedure, so as Steve said, you got to be able to do this in the office. There's that little template up in the upper left corner that marks where the, the e-coin will be placed and where you mark the incision. You put in about 10, 20 cc's of lidocaine, the patient just lays there. Um, and I must say, when you do this, I'm a little bit of a scaredy cat, actually, but when you do these things, You'll say to yourself, this is simple, this is safe, because it's just under the skin. I mean, it's, you're not really putting it in a dangerous area at all. And I must say, it's actually fun to do. You're going to find when you start doing these, this is kind of fun to do. And urologists like doing procedures in the office that are fun and safe. Uh, some data. Ignore the blue box for a second. Look to your right. That's the median and mean reduction in urge incontinence in the 3, 6, and 12-month data of the pilot of the feasibility trial with nice reductions. And, that, and then the blue to your left, that's the, that's, the, that's the ongoing public knowledge, three-month data in the FDA trial. Uh, and, the, and, and you'll see a lot of the data on Saturday if you attend Dr. Rogers' meeting. Now, it is very well tolerated. It's safe, very low complications. We didn't know. Maybe it's going to migrate a lot and get infected. But those are actually uncommon and rare events. Cosmetically, it's fine. And that second bullet is the most important. This device addresses the primary barrier that's associated with each current robe therapy. So it addresses the multiple retreatments of PTNS coming back to the office. We all know that, that's a barrier. It addresses the retreatment rate and the fear of retention associated with Botox. And it addresses the perceived invasiveness and the surgery and the cost of interstim. And because of that, I really believe when this gets FDA approval, this is always gonna be a patient choice. We need a portfolio of choices, but they're gonna choose this as their first line over all the other therapies in many, of the, in many cases. Um, we've been doing a lot of work on the saphenous nerve. A, a good friend of mine now, Paul Yu, I'll teasingly say he invented the saphenous nerve for overactive bladder using rats in Toronto. And, uh, but that's, that sentry nerve uh, in the medial aspect of your leg does treat overactive bladder. He showed that in animals. We published uh, 18 patients putting a PTNS needle in that nerve. The nerve is very easy to locate. It's like playing a little piano down your medial calf. You feel a little vibration. It does work. And I agree with you. There's no sense in 
having PTNS again in the lower leg with a needle, we don't need another treatment like that. But the nerve is so superficial, you can stimulate it transcutaneously. And if this Safstin gets, when it gets its FDA approval, hopefully, um, it will redefine the role of neuromodulation in the treatment of overactive bladder, and it will be neuromodulation for the masses. And I, it's going to be exciting for our patients, and I think it will help all the other treatments as well myself. Right? That's my opinion. But if you think of all your patients, the young and the old, and they have mild symptoms, they only have nocturia, the frail elderly, there's no, so many faces. I'm not sure if, I, if industry always understands who we're really treating and with their mixed symptoms. When you think of them, there's no perfect therapy, as Dr. Webster Train would say, he said, there's no panacea. You know, we do need a portfolio of therapies. There's no question we need uh, future targets, and the ones that are coming, I think, are really good. Uh, Patient-centric excellence should be our, the ultimate goal of every person in this room, is that's what we're here to do. And, hey, Steve, I hear you're a really good tennis player. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.